to give John a hand as he comes up. And John, this is not coincidence, but I feel like you're Yeah, I've heard that one before. Thank you, Rob. As Rob said, my name is John. I think I've probably met more of you maybe in the second service than in the first service earlier, because I'm the guy that can't get here for first service, to be quite honest. Um, so if I, if I know you, hi, welcome. Glad to have you. If I, if, I, if I don't know you and you say, boy, you really look familiar, um, you might have seen me playing guitar back here before, because I do that about once a month. So thank you, Esther, for letting me do that. So we are continuing through our series in Mark. If you're a guest here, welcome. We're going through Mark. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 this week and next week. If you have your Bibles or your phones, you want to kind of turn there ahead of time, now's a great time to do that. It will also be on the screen. Um, So we got you covered either way. But before that, I mentioned I was in the band. Um, You get to play guitar, which which is a lot of fun. And I just want to show you this picture. This picture is a picture of the very first electric guitar that I built from scratch. So I carved the neck, I, you know, did all the, yeah, well, I mean, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Carved the neck, did all the stuff with it, did all the carving. Um, And I got to tell you, it is not an easy task to build a guitar. It's actually quite a difficult task. You have to know a lot about guitars. Um, You have to know a lot about woodworking. You have to know how to finish wood. You have to know how to cut it and route out things. You have to know about electronics. You have to know how to solder. And you've got to know how to be able to read a wiring diagram. You even have to know about physics. There's certain things with the scale length of the string and where the harmonics go. And you have to know all this stuff to be able to build a guitar. And you also have to know which measurements need to be exact. It turns out that there are some things in a guitar that have to be perfect. And there are some things that you can fudge a little and it's still okay. And there's a lot of fudging in that guitar, I'm here to tell you. Um, now, I'm, I'm not a novice builder. I've actually built a number of instruments in the past. I build cigar box guitars as a hobby. But this was the first uh, full-size electric. And I've got to tell you, there's a definite uptick in complexity and difficulty when you make a jump like this. And why do I bring this up? Well, because this guitar took me about a year from start to finish. And it wasn't because it took a long time to build. About 90% of the build process was me out in my garage with the guitar in pieces sitting there going, what did I get myself into? What do I do next? Oh, my. So why do I bring that up? Well, because that's a similar experience that I just had this past several weeks preparing to do a sermon on Mark 13. (laughs) This is one of the tougher sections of Scripture, maybe the toughest that I've ever had to prepare for, There's just a lot going on here. Um, There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of layers that you have to uncover and peel back. It can be difficult to zero in on what exactly is going on, which details go with which events. Um, And just like building that guitar, a lot of my sermon prep was really me sitting in front of the Word going, okay, God, what do I do now? How do I, what have I got myself into? And maybe you're like me if you've read and studied passages like this one, what we would call eschatological passages about the end times. You might read through and study it and then be left scratching your head and going, what did I just read? And this generally is what happens when you start studying these things. It gets really complicated really quick. And I think a big component of that is just the cultural distance 
between the Bible and the people who lived then versus us and where we live now. So, for example, um, apocalyptic literature was a genre of literature back, you know, 2,000 years ago. We really don't have that today. We don't, you know, people don't generally write books like that today. We aren't as intimately familiar with the history of Israel or with the Old Testament uh, or the Hebrew Scriptures as the disciples or the Jews would have been back then. And so it really makes it difficult to look at passages like that today. Uh, I was talking with my wife about this last night, and I came up with a, uh, with a good analogy. So imagine that you are trying to explain the 12th man idea to someone who doesn't even know what football is. Like, where would you even start? Right? Like, okay, what, what 12th man, what's that? Oh, well, it's the, the, the fans down at the Seahawks games. Seahawks, what, like the birds? No, like the football team. Football? What's football? Like, there's all these layers that are involved. And, and funny story, when I moved up here uh, about seven or eight years ago from Colorado, I saw all these 12 flags flying around all over town. I had to ask somebody, like, what, are, what is this? I don't know. So I found that out. I found out it wasn't actually a player on the team. <laughs> so that's kind of what we're looking at here. When you dig into these passages... And it's just a different time and a different place. There's scriptures and events that you may not just immediately recall when, when, you're, when you're dealing with these things. But uh, it's good to wrestle. It's good to challenge yourself. It's good to look at these tough scriptures and see what we can glean from them. It helps us to be more mature Christians. So we're going to dig into it today. Um, but before we get into the details of the text, I want to take a step back and just kind of present something to you. So... When I'm trying to learn something, when I'm trying to, to dig uh, you know, into a scripture, for example, and get an idea of what it is, something that helps me out is to be able to identify some kind of an overarching mental framework. I want some kind of idea about what's going on at a high level, and then I can start putting the details where they need to be. And so as I was studying for this week and next, I was trying to figure out, like, okay, what's the general flow? What's going on here? And in my mind, I started to get this picture of a runner getting ready for a race. Um, now, you've probably all been to a track meet before and seen a track race. Maybe, uh, if you're like me, you've actually run in a track meet before. And what is a stereotypical phrase that people say when you get ready to run a race? What, what is it? Yeah, on mark, set, go. Or another one might be ready, set, go. Which... Yeah, there we go. The clicker didn't get the message. Ready, set, go, right? So as a runner, you walk up to the line, you get yourself ready, you get yourself prepared to run the race, and then you get set. You tow the line or you get in the blocks if you're running a sprint, and then the gun goes off and you go. And so what I realized was this is really a good idea to understand what Jesus is talking about here, this, both this week and next week, as regards the end times. And so we're going to use this idea of ready, set, go this week and next week to kind of give us an overarching idea to put some of our details into. And so today is going to be all about the getting ready part of that. Okay, so we're going to uh, read the text in a minute. Let's pray, and then we'll get into our text. So pray with me. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the fact that we even get to come here openly and without fear of persecution, come and study your word and we thank you, too, that you, uh, you give us these hard scriptures to, to work through and to study so that we have to pause and think about you and, 
and how you work uh, in this world and in our lives. And so we just remember that, uh, that all scripture is God-breathed and, and profitable for teaching. So God, we ask that you would help us to see this passage clearly, that you would help us to have the appropriate head knowledge that can then get down into our hearts and work its way out through our actions. So we just ask that today and ask this in your name. Okay, so as I have stated, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 14. It's up here on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. And this is Jesus talking. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then Mark says, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Okay. Well, that seems pretty clear, right? Any questions? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the correct response. There's a lot going on here, right? There's just a lot that just needs unpacking. And in order to unpack some of these ideas, we're going to have to kind of shift into more of a classroom mode for a few minutes. Um, there's some ancient history that we have to learn about. There's some... Old Testament references that we may not be familiar with that we need to get educated on. So it's going to be a bit heady for a few minutes, so if you are a history nut, today is your day. And if you are a note taker, today would be a great day to take notes. And if you're not, that's okay. Hang with us. We're going to circle back around. We're going to come to the application. I promise we'll, we'll bring you out. Okay, so first of all, we've got to talk about the elephant in the room. And that will be the abomination of desolation. Okay, what on earth is Jesus talking about? I don't know about you, this is not normal language that I normally use. Um, when I go to work and talk with my coworkers, I don't recall having a conversation about this ever. I don't ever recall having, just, you know, walking down the street and minding my own business and saying, oh, hey, look, abomination of desolation, there he is. That's just not what happens, right? It's not a part of my normal life. And even if I did see one, I... Not sure I would recognize it. But Jesus brings this up with his disciples like he thinks that they just know what he's talking about. So why would he do that? Well, I think the answer is because they do know what he's talking about. So what we find when you dig into this is you find that Jesus isn't actually the first person to bring up this idea. In fact, Jesus is actually referencing way back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, and specifically Daniel chapter 9. Okay, so let's talk about Daniel for a minute. I just want to give you a quick timeline of Daniel and the events in his life and kind of who he is. So in 605 B.C., uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you've probably heard that name before, 
he invaded Judah and he laid siege to Jerusalem. And eventually, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and captured Jerusalem. So his siege was a success. And after he took, uh, and after this, this battle, he took many of the Jews living there with him back to Babylon. That's called the Babylonian exile. And he also stole some of the sacred vessels from the temple that was in Jerusalem. And as it happens, Daniel was uh, a noble among the Jews. And so he was one of the first people that was forced to move to Babylon outside, to move from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so that's kind of Daniel's backstory. He's born and raised in Jerusalem. Now he's living in a foreign land against his will. And he has, and he had to watch as the Babylonians ransacked his hometown and stole from the temple. So then in Daniel chapter 9, we learn that Daniel somehow had obtained a copy of what we would call Jeremiah today. And he had read this uh, scroll of Jeremiah, and he found out that Jeremiah <clears throat> had predicted that Jerusalem would fall and then lie in ruins for 70 years, and then, after that, God would destroy Babylon. So listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says, This whole area will become a desolate wasteland. Again, he's talking about the Judah. He says, These nations will be subject to the king of Babylon for 70 years, but... When the 70 years are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation for their sins, and I will make the land of Babylon an everlasting ruin. I, the Lord, affirm it. Okay, so this is the prophecy that that Daniel has read. And he's seen firsthand that the first part of this prophecy did in fact come true because he lived through it. He got to see, unfortunately, the destruction of Jerusalem, and he got to see uh, the exile. But in Daniel chapter 9, what he's doing is he's praying to God about the second half of that prophecy, this idea that 70 years are going to happen and then they're going to get to go back home and Babylon will be punished. And he's greatly concerned about this. And so he spends time praying to the Lord. And the first part of Daniel 9, he spends a significant amount of time confessing sin, the sins of his people and imploring God to forgive them and allow them to return home, to bring that 70 years to a close. And so while he's praying, God actually answers him by sending the angel Gabriel, who gives him a glimpse into this future, what it's going to look like. And I'm going to really paraphrase it here just for time's sake. Gabriel basically tells Daniel, look, yes, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and there's going to be um, restored, excuse me, but there's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen along, along with it. And if you've ever heard of the 70 weeks in Daniel, that's what he's talking about. That's here in Daniel chapter 9. Now, that's a fascinating subject uh, for another time. I'm going to let Steve take that one later on. Right now, I just want to point out one of those things that's going to happen during that, those 70 weeks that Gabriel talks about. And so here it is in Daniel 9:27. He says, uh, again, this is Gabriel talking. He says, The abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Okay, so when Jesus tells his disciples to be on the lookout for the abomination of, des- of desolation, his disciples, since they were Jews, they should have, or probably would have, thought back to Daniel 9.27. Okay, so that gives you one piece of the puzzle. But before we start talking about who this person might be, we really need to understand what this 
title actually means. So what actually is an abomination of desolation? Well, here's how one commentary puts it. The phrase describes someone that causes the godly to desert the temple on account of their reprehensible character or actions. So, in other words, it's someone who who goes into the temple and pretty much is there specifically so that they can ruin it for everyone else. So just imagine someone, you know, coming into perhaps even our sanctuary and just doing the vilest, basest, most disgusting things you can possibly think of, and they're doing it specifically to disgust and to insult and to drive people away. So this is what the abomination of desolation, that's what that means. So whoever it is, pretty clear it's not a good person. Okay, so that's, who, that's what it is. So now the question is, who is he? Who is this abomination? As it turns out, there are a couple different candidates. <clears throat> the first of whom actually lived uh, several hundred years before Jesus was born. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. So let me tell you about Antiochus. So in 167 B.C., Antiochus, who was the king of Syria, he conquered Jerusalem. And why did he conquer Jerusalem? Well, among other reasons, he wanted to destroy Judaism. He wanted to wipe them off the map. The people, the religion, everything. So, okay, well, why does he, why did he want to do that? Well, just to get to, to know this guy a little bit better, Epiphanes, um, that, that's not his last name, okay? Epiphanes was a title that he gave himself. So, okay, what does Epiphanes mean? Well, in Greek... Epiphanes means God made manifest. So now imagine you just give yourself that title. What does that say about how you view yourself? You probably think quite highly of yourself, probably more highly than you ought. So again, he believed that he was God made manifest, and that is you know, pretty much anti-Judaism, who says God is. So he wanted to eradicate it. He just wanted to take it out. So he conquers Jerusalem, and as part of his plan, he goes into the temple and he does three of the most horrible things that you could ever conceive to do in the temple. The first thing he does, he builds an altar in the courtyard of the temple to the Greek god Zeus. So he's not off to a good start. Second, he takes pigs and he sacrifices them on said altar. Now, if you know anything at all about Judaism, you know that pigs are a big no-no. We don't touch them, we don't eat them, we don't do nothing with pigs. Third, as if those two things weren't bad enough, he set up a prostitution trade within the temple. So you've got idolatry, you've got sexual immorality, and you have ceremonial uncleanliness all going on inside the temple, which, as you can imagine, did not make the Jewish people very happy. And if you read the contemporary Jewish accounts, they actually refer refer to Antiochus as the abomination of desolation, as he's actually called that in the accounts. So you might say, well, okay, then Antiochus is fulfilling Daniel's prophecy 200 years before Jesus talks about this idea. But the problem is, as you read through this text, Jesus is clearly warning his disciples that these events haven't happened yet. Okay, so Antiochus can't really be who Jesus is talking about. So then a second candidate would come after Jesus, a couple decades after, in fact, and this time it's A.D. 70, 
And this is in a very important, probably the most important date in, in Jewish history because this is when Jerusalem was destroyed. And Steve talked last week about the, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem today. And it's the only wall of the temple that's still standing. Well, what happened to the temple? It was destroyed in this destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And it does appear that Jesus is referring quite a bit in this passage to that destruction in 70. So, for instance, he talks about fleeing to the mountains in verse 14. And historically, we know that Jewish Christians did flee into the mountains shortly before Titus uh, rolled into town. And, of course, this makes sense. You can imagine the scene when you know the Roman army is coming into your town and you know they're not there just to have a good time. You... uh, you would probably leave as quickly as possible. You probably wouldn't have time to go to your house and get possessions. You probably wouldn't have time to leave work and stop by the store to pick up some groceries. You may not even have time to get your jacket. You know they're coming. You have to stop, drop everything, and just run. And that's exactly what happened, and that's what Jesus said would happen. And again, this is exactly what it was like in the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me tell you a little bit more about it. In the year 66, the Jewish populace there began to revolt against the Romans because the Romans had stolen a bunch of silver from the temple. So there we go, stealing things from the temple again. And this eventually escalated into a war, and 60,000 Roman soldiers came and killed or enslaved 100,000 Jews. And then four years later, Rome came back and they finished the job, so to speak, and they ended up killing as many as one million Jewish people during this destruction in 70. And of course, while they were at it, for good measure, they completely destroyed and burned down the temple, except for that one wall. So, as a person living at that time, this would have been a tribulation unlike anything anyone would have ever known. And just imagine, a million of your countrymen are now dead, and the one thing that united all of your country and all of your religion is now just a heap of burning rubble. So this certainly fits in with what Jesus is talking about in these verses. Okay, so in that case, Jesus must have been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, right? And the abomination of desolation would have been Titus, right? Well, the answer ends up being sort of. And this is really where the text gets difficult, It does seem that Jesus was prophesying about this coming destruction of Jerusalem, especially if we focus on verses 14 through 18. And honestly, if he had stopped talking after verse 18, we could probably say, okay, yeah, that's what he's talking about. But the problem is, he gives us more information, and it kind of makes makes it a little less clear. Let's look at verse 19 and 20 again. Jesus says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So Jerusalem's destruction was bad. In fact, I would say it was horrendous. But as awful as it was, it doesn't quite fit this description that Jesus gives us in 19 and 20. And unfortunately, we know of worse examples of barbarity and mass killings than what Titus did. Um, Unfortunately, men like Hitler and Stalin and governments like the Khmer Rouge, 
they, their evil overshadowed what Titus did in AD 70. But even the worst of these examples doesn't really fit this idea that if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Even as bad as World War II, for instance, was, we have really never seen that level of tribulation as a species, such to, the, uh, to such an extent that every person's life on earth was in immediate danger. So it's clear then that Jesus is talking about events that haven't happened yet, either for his original listeners, the disciples, or even for us. And of course, that means he's talking about the end times. And we know this is because from other New Testament writings, we know there is a great tribulation coming, and it does fit this description. If you just read the book of Revelation, you'll get it. You'll see this worldwide destruction and, and mass pandemonium and death uh, on just this wide scale, which we don't even comprehend. And we'll get a little bit more into that next Sunday, so put a pin in that, but I just want to bring it up um, because it does raise an important point. Why is it that Jesus seems like he's talking about multiple events in this passage? And why is it that there's seemingly multiple options for who this abomination of desolation might be? Well, the answer is that when we look at prophecies in the Bible, they often have multiple fulfillments. So for any given prophecy, you might find that there's an initial fulfillment, and then later on you might see that there's additional fulfillments down the road, and there might even be an ultimate or final fulfillment that kind of sum up all the previous fulfillments. And I want to give you an example of this. It's one we all know, and I'm going to show you kind of what I mean here. We just wrapped up the Christmas season. Uh, if you came to our Christmas Eve service, you would have seen this first. It's one that's very popular that time of year. Maybe. Can you go to the next slide? Thank you. Okay, here we go. Isaiah 7:14. I know you've heard this before. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so we've all been through Christmas before. Who is this talking about? Jesus, yes, Sunday school answer, right? It's Jesus. But, and that's true, because Matthew tells us that much in his gospel. But what if I were to tell you that this prophecy actually gets fulfilled just a couple verses later in Isaiah? Let's back out and look at the context. Okay, so here we are. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, we know that part. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. All right, so if you look at the context of Isaiah 7, there were two nations that were breathing down the backs of Israel. It happened to be Damascus and Samaria in this case. And, you know, people were worried, and Isaiah says, all right, look, God's going to give you a sign. There's going to be a young woman, she's going to give birth to a son, and before the son can choose between right and wrong, those two kingdoms, Damascus and Samaria, will be done away with. They will no longer be a problem. Okay, let's see what happens just a couple of verses later in Isaiah 8. So Isaiah says, well, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. 
And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershala Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So again, in the original context, Isaiah is saying, Look, there's going to be a child who will be born, and before that child is, you know, two, three, four years old, these two kingdoms will be gone. And it turns out that the child he was talking about was his own son, Mahershala Hashbaz. Now, I would not recommend you name your son that, but that's what Isaiah did. But as Isaiah continues to write his book, and as subsequent generations began to study the, his prophecies, what, what, we, what he and they realized and was, was that uh, this prophecy, although there was an initial fulfillment, there was an ultimate or bigger or better fulfillment and it ended up being the Messiah. And that's where Matthew gets his information from. So again, here's a perfect example of a prophecy with a, with a near or an initial fulfillment and then a far or an ultimate fulfillment. And so that's what's going on here in Mark 13. It's the same thing. So when you think about the abomination of des- desolation, okay, that was Daniel's prophecy via Gabriel in Daniel 9.27. And you can say, okay, yes, it was fulfilled by Antiochus in 167 BC, uh, BCE. And you can also say, yes, it was fulfilled by Titus in the great destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But we also know, because Jesus tells us, that the ultimate, the final fulfillment is going to be the Antichrist and the great tribulation, which is still to come. So in other words, the former events foreshadow or give you a taste of or a glimpse of what will happen in the future. And so this is why Jesus can say to us to be ready, to be on guard. We can know something of these events that are yet to come because we have the prophecies that tell us and we have these, these initial fulfillments that give us a glimpse of what's going to happen. And so this idea gets reiterated in verse 21 and 22 where Jesus says, And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Okay, so Jesus says here, he says, look, there's going to be people who will come, not just a few people, but a lot of people who are either going to say, look, I'm the Christ, or I saw the Christ, he's over there, and Jesus is saying, look, don't believe them. It's the same thing that First John 2.18 tells us. It reads, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. So again, we're back to this idea of initial and, and ultimate fulfillment. So we learn that there's not just one big A Antichrist, but there's all these little A Antichrists throughout history that are going to come. And we need to keep an eye out for them. And what I find really interesting in verse 22 is that Jesus says, look, these false Christs, these false prophets, these little a antichrists, they can perform signs and wonders. Have you ever thought about that? These aren't just people that are claiming to be from God or claiming to be the Messiah. They even seem to have the ability to back it up. But even this isn't news to God. This doesn't catch him off guard. In fact, Jesus' words refer clear back to the book of Deuteronomy, way back when Israel was first getting started. In fact, I want to show you a a quick verse from Deuteronomy. 
So in Deuteronomy 13, we read, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign and a wonder, and the sign and the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, okay, generally that means the prophet is to be trusted, right? That's, that's kind of the sign. But he says, if all that happens, and then he says, oh, but let's go after other gods which you haven't known, and let's serve them. God says, no, you, you don't listen to those words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So from the beginning, it's clear, uh, God is clear that it doesn't matter what anyone calls themselves. It doesn't matter how many miracles people can perform. It doesn't matter if that they claim to be the Christ or a prophet, any of that stuff. If they try to lure you away from God, as revealed in the Bible and the person of Christ, then Jesus is saying, you don't listen to that person. All right, so this is not the easiest portion of Scripture to work through. There's honestly more questions than answers in a text like this. And, uh, you know, I tried to pull out a couple of the highlights, um, but even so, I had to leave a lot of questions on the table. Um, And even just trying to answer a couple of these basic questions in the text, it requires quite a bit of digging, quite a bit of, you know, head knowledge. Um, But I want to turn out of the heart knowledge. If we learn all these facts and historical data and then walk out the door and, and, and aren't changed, then we kind of kind of waste our time. So let's talk about the heart uh, attributes here. So what do we do with this text? We've got all this information. How can we get it from our head to our heart and then out through our actions? So I've got a couple takeaways for us today. And the first takeaway, this passage really speaks to the importance of knowing Christ. And when I say knowing Christ, what I mean is knowing him personally. Not just knowing about him, not just knowing a bunch of facts about his life, and really not even just like having some kind of strictly personal religious experience. What I mean is actually following him, actually submitting to his authority in your life. And this passage shows us that knowing Christ, it matters. It matters in the here and now. It matters in the future. Why is that? Well, because we know that these false Christs, these false prophets, will come. And like First John tells us, there will be an endless stream of them in the world. And so if we don't want to be led astray by them, we have to know Jesus. We have to know his voice. And so the first challenge in a text like this is, do you know Christ? Do you recognize his voice? Think back to John uh, chapter 10, verse 27. You'll be familiar with this. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So have you ever thought about why as a church we say, Hey, it's January. Let's start a new Bible reading plan. Read through the Bible this year. Or why, as a Christian, we make such an effort to to work on things like prayer and personal discipline? Okay, it's not so that we can check a box. It's not so that we can show someone else how holy we are, because trust me, we're not. And it's not so that we can brag, so we can go up to God and say, Hey God, look how cool I am. Look at all the stuff I did for you. Right? That's not why we do those things. Why do we read the Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we gather corporately to worship and to, and to hear the word? We do it so we can hear his voice, so we can know his voice, so we can follow it. So second, this passage speaks to the assurance of hope in times of trouble. 
Now, this, this idea is really important, and, and it's really one of the major re- reasons for eschatology in the Bible at all. We'll get more into that next week, but it's really about the assurance of hope in times of trouble. So we know that times of trouble come. We know that the Great Tribulation will come. Uh, before first service, I met with some of the elders, and, and we had a time of prayer for the people in the congregation. And we had a whole page of people that were dealing with with just with hurt and pain and even death. And my guess is we could have written down five or ten more pages of things just in this church. We live in a fallen world and we have to deal with pain and tribulation and hurt and death. And eschatology gives us hope. We know that God is not caught off guard by our pain. In fact, he predicted that there would be pain. And yet... He's the God who has also been through pain himself. Right? He sent his son Jesus to the cross to suffer and to die for us. That gives us hope. We know that he's defeated evil and death. We know that even though tribulation will come, we know that we serve a God who will one day make all things new. And so that helps us to endure our own tribulations because we can look to Christ. Or in other words, our future hope drives and undergirds our hope now. And then third and finally, we know what Jesus' main point was for telling his disciples all this because he flat out says it. So in verse 23, he says, be on guard, be ready. And this is a theme that Jesus expounds upon throughout the Gospels, but especially talks about here. And so if you think back to our our mental framework of the the runner getting ready to run a race, there's the ready and the set and the go. So Jesus is talking all about the ready today. What does that mean to be ready? Because we just don't know when tribulation will come. We don't know when the end times will come. We don't know when things will happen to us personally. But we do know that these things will come. And so because of that, Jesus says we need to be watchful, we need to be faithful, and we need to persevere. Okay, I'm going to ask the band to come up and we'll close in prayer. God, I just want to thank you for this time to to, uh, gather together to read your word, to learn a little bit more about you and to learn a little bit more about how we can uh, be uh, conformed to your image through through your word. So God, this is a tough passage of scripture, but it has truth. Um, And my hope, God, is that we would all walk out of here just a little bit more like you, with a little bit more hope in our soul that we can endure and a little bit greater sense of the fact that we need to be ready. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.